Hey crew, before we get started today, a mea culpa on my part. We're talking about the Voyager episode, Favorite Son on this episode. <laughs> Not Fortunate Son, which I think I say maybe once or twice in the episode. But worse than that, this episode of course features Harry Kim, played by Garrett Wong, who I call Garrett Wang. A couple times, and I apologize to Garrett for not knowing how to pronounce his name correctly. Uh, so whenever you hear that on the show, just curse me and think about how bad I feel. But also, curse me more, because I'll never feel bad about liking the Voyager episode, Darkling. I'm joined by Dr. Mohamed Noor on this show, and I was really happy to have him back on the program. I had a great time talking to him the last time he was on the show and on this show as well. And we, of course, delve into the scientific aspects of this episode, which, of course, is his specialty. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. And with that, let's get underway. Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and in this episode, Harry is programmed to view the Nasari with the same suspicion and loathing that I reserve for Chakotay Seven Shippers. I'm joined on this episode once again. <laughs> I'm joined on this episode once again by Dr. Mohammed Noor. Dr. Noor is the Dean of Natural Sciences and a professor of biology at Duke University. He's a 2008 Darwin Wallace Medal recipient, and he's the author of Live Long and Evolve What Star Trek Can Teach Us About Evolution, Genetics, and Life on Other Planets. Dr. Noor, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. It's great to be back here. It's great to have you back aboard. Today we'll be talking about Favorite Son, the 20th episode of the third season of Star Trek Voyager. Since its inception, the Star Trek franchise has told stories against the backdrop of a scientifically advanced future. Scientific phenomenon, both stellar and organic, that are only conceptual to us, are daily occurrences for the members of Starfleet. But when you hang your tile as the science series, you're going to be judged as one, and Star Trek isn't always at the head of the class. Whether it's misunderstanding evolution, doubling down on tardigrade gene transfer, or whatever was going on in Threshold. The writers of Star Trek are not scientists themselves, and it is fiction that they're writing after all. But Trek makes up for what it lacks by putting science and scientific careers at the center of the human adventure. Actually, can I, can I insert one thing there? Sure. So actually, one of the writers for Star Trek Discovery for Season 2 is Dr. Erica Lippold, who actually has a PhD in biology. <laughs> so I have to amend that. <laughs> I wonder if she so, feels extra pressure when something happens on the show that's like, hey, that wasn't me. I'm not sure. <laughs> but we'll talk about that a little later in the show. Uh, first, Dr. Nora, it's great to have you back on the show. And the last time that you were on, we were talking about the new teaching methods available to educators in the 21st century. And we were speculating on what the classroom of the future might look like. And something <laughs> we didn't anticipate was that what, what it would look like was empty. Yeah, we, we definitely have a, a bit of a shake to the system that happens starting in March 2020. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> to say the least. How has the uh, pandemic affected your work as an educator? 
Well, for me, so actually I was going to teach a class in the spring semester, but it actually was going to be in the second half of the spring semester. Mm. So it actually hadn't started as of the point that everything was shutting down for the pandemic. So for mine, I actually just canceled the class. It was a graduate seminar. That wasn't a big deal. But I definitely have a lot of close colleagues who have a lot of classes that mid-semester suddenly jump from in-person to fully online, which is really challenging because a lot of them have laboratory exercises. So there was a complete reimagining that had to happen. And I have to say, big big, big shout out to all the educators who did this, both at the college level and especially at the K-12 level, because often the resources aren't as great there. Yeah. They, you know, they really just dove in and said, all right, let's do this. And they made it happen. And yeah, was it, was it seamless? No, but I mean, any sort of transition like that in one week's time yeah, yeah. is amazing. It's amazing. An impressive turnaround. And of course, exactly. uh, educators work so hard and do not yeah, get the credit all the that time. they deserve. Yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, we talked about distance learning uh, as a tool uh, um, when we talked before, and I've spoken to a lot of educators who have been, in one way or another, conducting class on the internet. And yep. I'm imagining that a lot of institutions are reevaluating how they can use distance learning in this time and, and going forward. Absolutely, absolutely. I know everybody has become an expert on Zoom. I'll say that. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> Yeah, people, I think, who didn't even know what Zoom was uh, yep. suddenly are now becoming experts in it. That's right. Now, now they're using the Zoom rooms to have discussion sections and have yeah. groups engage in, yeah. <laughs> and know how to do the presentations online. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you work for a very prestigious university, and part of the experience of attending uh, an Ivy League or comparable school is yep. actually attending that school, you know, campus life and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. How do you think that a widespread adoption of distance and online learning might affect the perception of top-tier schools? Like, how much of the prestige is in actually being there? That's a great question. So, uh, as you said, you're exactly right in that, you know, the college experience is much more than just the content that's delivered in a classroom. Mm-hmm. That said, I mean, the, one of the advantages of working, for example, example, with a research university is you're, you're, you're interacting not just with people who know the material, but you're actually interacting with people who created a lot of the knowledge that is being taught. Yeah. So for example, if you're talking to you know, some you know, very senior chemists or something like that, they're often, as, as they're talking in their especially upper level classes, they're talking about science that they actually helped produce quite a bit through. So that, that by itself is, is one big benefit to it as opposed to just taking, say, for example, the massive open online classes online where you're not actually having direct interaction. The hope is even with distance learning that we can have as much as possible some sort of direct interactive component. And that's been the big struggle that everybody's tr- trying to work through right now. And I think people are coming up with ways of trying to make it work, having these little smaller group sessions come together and things like that so you can have a little bit of that piece. That said, the pieces that are that are the harder ones, even than the classes, as you, uh, as you alluded to, are the co curriculars. So for example, if you wanted to do research in a research laboratory <laughs> and you're not there, <laughs> right. Right. that's really hard. I mean, there's some kinds of research that are fully computational that maybe you can take part in or things that can be translated. But there are some pieces that honestly, that are very, very, very hard to translate to online. And that's, you know, until we have a good vaccine, those are, those are going to be a bit of a challenge. Now, Duke University hasn't just completely cut off all its undergraduates that, you know, I think the first and second year students for the fall semester are allowed to come and take part in classes in person in, in socially distanced rooms with masks and things like that. And they can also work in research labs. So we're trying to make it work as best as we can. And I think the plan is then for spring semester to swap and have the third and fourth year students then on campus. Yeah. So get a little bit of a campus experience while not putting people at, at undue risk. Yeah, it's hard to set that up on your kitchen table. For yeah. instance, you're going to run out of pipettes. Yeah, it's not easy to do. Uh, well, speaking of things moving online, a lot of uh, cons have moved online. Uh, yeah. Comic cons and sci-fi cons. And you were involved in the virtual Trek con recently yes. on YouTube. I 
loved it. Oh my gosh, I thought it was fantastic. Sorry. <laughs> well, no, I just thought it was incredible. I mean, it was organized by the Seventh Thrill podcast, and yep. I thought it was incredible how well it went, how yeah. easy it was, and of course, access is easy because everything is on YouTube. It was great. Yeah. Yeah, and what was great about it is it wasn't just that there were videos online and people could watch them. There was a lot more to it than that. And I think this is a credit to the Seventh Rule organizers. So this is um, Ryan T. Husk and Sirach Lofton who put this together. Mm-hmm. They, they've created with their podcast, Seventh Rule, this online community that, community that interacts with each other. So when they put something on YouTube, they have it as a YouTube premiere where it appears at, say, let's say 9 o'clock p.m. or something like that. Right. It appears then, but it's not just you can just fast forward through it. It's, you actually have to follow along with it and they have a chat that everybody's being interactive in and and these people have gotten to know each other i've joined this chat as well people have gotten to know each other they really interact and what's great about it this is something you can't do in an in-person con you can actually comment on things in real time as everybody's watching it together you know so it's it's basically synchronous learning to use the educational term (laughs) but like in a con if you started talking about oh why did he say this i don't understand that people would be like shh yeah, right. Yeah. No, no cross chat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Much less having this giant group all do it together at the same time. And you know, if you want to pay attention, you can. If you don't, you can just completely ignore the chat and just listen to what people are saying. So it becomes very optional where nobody's disrupting anybody else. And I love that. I think the community they built is really nice. And what really impressed me about the con, and this is something, again, a testament to that group in particular, is the positivity in that chat thing. I mean, if you go to the bottom of CNN or Fox News, it's, it's oh, not yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there was there were so few trolls there. So few. I mean, it, it must have been ninety nine point nine percent of the comments were, you know, just inquisitive or positive or thoughtful. You know, very very few critical or mean sort of statements that came out there. That's, that's amazing. That's really great, and it makes a mods job really easy too. Totally. <laughs> uh, I know that you've been working as a consultant for the Star Trek franchise on their new shows, and I was talking with um, another consultant, uh, Dr. Aaron McDonald, the other day, and as I said to her, uh, I know that you'll be immediately beamed into space by Viacom CBS if you break your NDA, <laughs> so uh, can you talk in a general sense about what sure. you've been consulting on? Sure. Now, let me, let me, let me clarify our, our roles because our roles are a little bit different. So sure. doc, Dr. Erin McDonald is the science advisor for the franchise. She's actually – she receives a regular paycheck, I believe, from CBS okay. for doing this work. Yeah. So she's sort of the main point person. I'm more an occasional consultant. I'm the occasional like we need a hired gun to help us with one complicated biology thing that Erin doesn't already know. Sure. So I'm more the occasional person who comes in and helps out in there. So her role is more more direct than mine is. But yeah, it's great. It's interesting how it, it works. I've, I had never experienced this before. I guess I started a little bit over a year ago. Uh, I never experienced anything like this before where like it, it could be, for example, early on in the story, they're just starting to flesh out a story and it has a component for me. It would be biology for her. It would be more the astrophysics. Mm-hmm. But they have a biology component. They're just saying, okay, we're going to flesh this out. Does this generally sound okay? Is there any things we need to watch out for? So that's sort of the early stage. Right. Mid-stage might be we have an episode. We have this thing happening can you know so there's a fictional example i always use this was not actually in any episode that's forthcoming but i I always use the same example just so i don't get in trouble (laughs) let's say they have an alien then there's a scene where the alien has to be able to turn invisible right in front of people as they're watching they might be like okay okay how how is that potentially possible the answer might be it's not but how can you get it as close as possible to being potentially possible and how do we make sure our explanation doesn't sound ridiculous to people who are really in the know right and then the most fine-grained thing would be like, here's a bit of dialogue of something that's happening in a particular scene. Can you make sure this is actually what somebody would say in that situation if they understood the science? Sure. 
Do you ever, uh, you know, log your sort of objections to something and they kind of say, well, I mean, it's as important. We're going to go ahead with this anyway. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, story has to trump science. Now, I should say that nothing I've actually worked on has aired yet. So I don't I actually don't know for sure okay. what has actually happened okay. for anything that I've worked on. <laughs> okay. but, but hopefully soon, as you know, uh, Discovery Season 3 starting October yes. 15th, which is very exciting. Yes. But um, – yeah, I don't know the answer to that, but in general, like story will have to trump science. I mean, we're not. This isn't National Geographic. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, <laughs> this is yeah. a, a science fiction. So if they need person X to go from place A to place B, and it's not physically possible, with then the answer has to be yes and as opposed to no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that, that credits Dr. McDonald for that verbiage. She says that all the time. Okay. <laughs> you know, uh, did you get to see Picard at all? I did. I've been wondering something about Picard, and this might be more of an existential question than a scientific or a biological one. And just for people who haven't seen it, uh, spoilers for the end of Picard here. But when Picard's mind is transferred to an android body at the end of season one, I wonder, does he feel human still? Like, what does it feel like to be an android? Yeah, it's a great question. And I guess there's a, a philosophical one beyond that. And this is this goes mm-hmm. with the transporters forever, too. Is he actually Picard or is it just basically a Picard yeah. uh, duplicate? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, he might retain all the memories and things like that. But, you know, that physical basis of Picard is gone. <laughs> that, well, it's somewhere. <laughs> it's in the ground yeah. somewhere. Yeah. I, uh, well, I should say it's dead. Maybe that's better. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, I think it's generally accepted in real life robotics or AI research that there's no reason at all that an artificial intelligence would think the way a human does or that a robot with senses would feel in the same way that we would. And we yeah. have things in sci-fi like robot psychologists and the three laws because it's fun to yeah. think that a robot would think and feel like us, but there's no reason that they would. Yeah, I guess you could just make it do that, but it's kind of pointless. <laughs> yeah, why would you want to? I mean, we obviously want to create something that looks like or, or feels yeah. like us we can relate to, but why limit yeah. it in that way? And yeah, I, exactly. wonder, I wonder since Picard's new body is Soong type and Dr. Soong works so long to create androids like Data and Lore and B4 yeah. who would strive to be human and presumably would think and feel in a similar way, I'd imagine that Picard probably feels human in a relatable way. Probably pretty close. Probably pretty close. It definitely seemed like he was aiming in that direction. Yeah. It's interesting the limitations you mentioned, if I remember correctly, that that's something that came up in uh, Battlestar Galactica. I know it's a different show, of course. Oh, well, go <laughs> but, ahead. <laughs> but I, I, I seem to remember that one of the Cylons was very bitter about the limitations imposed upon his body. It was the older one who used to be in Quantum Leap. I can't remember the. I can't remember the. Dean name. Stockwell, yeah. Yes, yeah, he's the exactly. Actor. Yeah, he was very bitter about that in that show. Like, why did you make me so limited? Why did you make me have to have just this set of senses and that's it? <laughs> why am I? Oh, why, why is my hairline receding? Come on, yeah, this right. Is stupid. Yeah. <laughs> hey, nothing wrong with receding hairline. Well, well, <laughs> present company accepted. Uh, since we talked last, you started your YouTube channel, Biotrekkie Explains. What do you talk about on your channel? That's a great question. So it, it's it's similar to my book in the sense that I try to figure a lesson from a particular episode that I want to go over. Yeah. And I open I open each um, each of the videos in that channel with like a scene from an episode or, or, or a plot from an episode. And then I say, okay, now let me dig in what the real biology is associated with this. And then I come back at the very end and say, okay, how well did they do? Is this feasible? Is this not feasible? The focus is, of course, not the Star Trek as much as teaching the biology, but I'm trying to use the Star Trek as a way of just engaging people in learning this interesting biology. Yeah. Do you put those videos together yourself? I do. So right now, I've still been a one-man show where I sit there, I record it, I edit it, I upload it, and it's just me. Yeah. <laughs> I, get, I get feedback. My my, my wife uh, will, will look over the episodes real quick and just tell me, like, oh, you said blah. I'm like, oh, shoot, I did say blah. I need to edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> Occasionally, I've gotten friends to look at it as well, too, but largely, it's it, 
it's mostly just a one man show. And I've definitely learned a lot about how to do this video editing. It's one of the advantages of oh, being sure. stuck at, stuck at home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a great time to be doing it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to dig into the science of a particular Star Trek episode today, Please. Favorite Son. Uh, why did you want to discuss this episode today? So this particular episode is interesting in that it has a fair number of references to genetics terms. It has some interesting behavioral aspects to it. It's got basically just a lot of biology. Voyager in general, I've noticed, seems to have a lot more biology than a lot of the other series. So it's one I tend to gravitate yeah, to for these kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. Um, and of course, this is an episode where the science and specifically the genetic science is science-y, science-ish. It's probably not actually plausible. Um, <laughs> and when I see episodes like this, uh, especially in Voyager, I always think, mm, Dr. Noor's not going to like this. <laughs> it's all good. I don't mind. <laughs> we, I take it for enjoyment. <laughs> yeah, right, right. We talked last time on the show about how it's interesting that genetic science and the original Star Trek were developing at the same time, really, and that even the original series had some nods to genetic theory. Of course, we didn't know as much as we know now. Uh, now, yeah. now in Voyager, uh, you know, we're in the late 90s. And of course, the idea of genetic science, especially just from a pop uh, culture perspective, is is growing. Uh, but Trek's still dealing with some of the fundamental misunderstandings about gene th theory and evolution and yes. genetics. Definitely so. Definitely so. And I find it strange that they pop up so often. Like you'll get something in TNG where you know the crew is devolving into animal <sighs> forms, and it's I guess it like you said, it's fun for a sci-fi story. But you get yep. letters from I'm sure people who were actual doctors and geneticists, and saying uh, you know maybe it wouldn't be like this, it'd be like this. And then the yep. next time they have a chance to do an episode like that, they kind of do the exact same thing. They just keep doing what they do. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I feel like they're. I feel like today they do a little bit better. And even then, I mean, they they did they did try. I mean, it was it's tough. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, again, story trumps the science. Uh, you know, yeah. if, if they're going to have these things change, they're just going to have a change. And even if there's no way that every every cell in your body has the same mutation, all of a sudden and instantly you change form, which is one of the most common things in just about all science fiction. I mean, honestly, Star Trek's better than most in that it at least tries to explain things. Whereas a lot of other shows, especially if you look at you know, say for example the DC or Marvel universe, they just they're just like we're just going to let whatever happen. We're not even and explain it or they'll just use complete gibberish terms <laughs> yeah right uh yeah to, to just get her to make up their own science basically yep, yeah yep. um yeah there, and of course you're always at the mercy of you know common knowledge at the time and what you yep. know i mean i think there's an episode in tng where dr crusher says that there's um a hundred thousand you know, genes in the human yeah. genome which at that time was an educated guess but it's yeah. really much lower than that that's correct but at the time, that was a reasonable guess. I mean, that's what people thought then. So, that, you know, credit to them. And again, th those kinds of mistakes come up every now and then. Like, for example, in Discovery, when they talked about the horizontal gene transfer with the tardigrade. Yeah. You know, as of 2015, that was what a study had shown. It's just they, they didn't see the, the, the follow-up studies, which failed to confirm that <laughs> a year or two later. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem there. It's like you always hear about something in a, in a news story and you never yep. hear the retraction later on. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Or, or just another study which failed to show the same answer. Yep. Maybe the, hey, maybe Dr. Crusher found some new form of DNA, quantum DNA or something like that, where there were even more, there's even more information. Who knows? Gotta love adding the word quantum to anything. It's the, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we're already doing it. Uh, well, we are talking about the Voyager episode, Favorite Son, the 20th episode of the third season of Star Trek Voyager. It first aired on March 19th of 1997. It was written by Lisa Klink, and Lisa Klink was a staff writer on the show. She was the executive story editor for Voyager's excellent fourth season. She wrote 13 episodes in total of Star Trek Voyager, as well as the DS9 episode Hippocratic Oath, and she served as writer and executive story 
story editor on the Roddenberry series Earth Final Conflict, and she was a writer-producer for the CBS series Martial Law. The episode was directed by Martin V. Rush. Rush worked as a director of photography on all four post-TOS pre-Disco Trek series, and he's directed five episodes from those shows, earning two Emmy nominations for his time on the franchise. He's been working as a DP and camera operator in Hollywood since the mid-1980s, and he's currently a cinematographer on The Orville. The star date for this episode is 50732.4, and your assignment, Muhammad, if you can, is to give sure. us a 25-word synopsis of Favorite Son. 25 words of his favorite son. I have to count the words as I'm saying them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Harry Kim starts turning alien. That's five. <laughs> <laughs> um, goes goes to planet with sexy women. That's all, and we're up to 11. <laughs> <laughs> they try to kill him to reproduce we're at 18 okay. <laughs> they figure it out and leave 24 <laughs> thin the french word for end yes there you go <laughs> i love the rigor with which you approach that and the precision as a scientist that was that was great i always get this mixed up i always want to call this fortunate son which of course is a ccr yep. song uh, yep. and, but it is a first season enterprise episode as well but yes That's this right. of course is favorite son yep. here are some interesting facts from our memory banks about this episode uh perhaps unsurprisingly considering its plot this episode had the working title of Heritage. This episode went through significant changes during its rewrite process. The initial draft, as written by Clink, would have established that Harry was indeed an alien-human hybrid. There really? Was, yes, they wanted to do wow. this. There was actually discussions about keeping his spot makeup around for the rest of the series, which I'm sure Garrett Wang was happy that they did not. <laughs> they did drop that idea. According to an interview with Harry Kim, uh, actor Garrett Wang, he said that uh, network executives got involved in the episode and ordered that it should have more, more sex and more action. So the plot about the Teresians wanting to now harvest Harry's genes was added. And the filming of the episode hit a few snags during production. The wedding scene where Taman uh, is joined to his three wives had to be reshot to give it a darker, more ritual feel. And the shooting on the episode was stretched out over the holiday break. So half of the episode was shot before and half after their two-week Christmas holiday which led to frustration with the director Rush uh, because of the crew's lack of focus. He said it was like herding cats. And Rush himself was disappointed with his own work on the episode, uh, mainly citing the confusing script. He said, quote, I didn't get it at all. I didn't have a clue how to tell that story, <laughs> end quote. He was, however, pleased with the work of the crew and the, and the efficiency in which they completed uh, this, the final scene in where Harry is beamed away from the pursuing Theresian women, which was technically difficult to accomplish. He ultimately called the episode a, quote, male fantasy piece with a dark twist, which I think, <laughs> I think that describes it pretty well. And he said sure. that he had hoped for a directing experience as satisfying as The Host or The Thaw, two of his previous Voyager efforts. And it's notable that this was the last episode that Rush would direct for the franchise until the fourth season Enterprise episode in A Mirror Darkly Part 2. So oh, Taman wasn't was the only person one. being drained by this. Yeah, he was uh, <laughs> wanted to step away for a while. Uh, opinions about the episode were mixed among the cast and crew. Uh, producer Jerry Taylor pegged this episode as being one of the weaker outings of season three, saying that it was an interesting idea that came off as looking a bit silly. Despite Rush's misgivings, he'd go on to say that he thought that the episode was entertaining and that it moved along. Garrett Wang criticized the writing of the episode, uh, the writing by committee nature of the script, and the story's lack of focus, saying that it was okay, but it could have been so much more. 
And finally, this episode and the two that preceded it, Darkling and Rise, are collectively known as the Trilogy of Terror for their generally accepted lack of quality. Huh. Which I um I don't know. The third it's a little season, harsh. <laughs> it is. Yeah, the third season's a little rough. This episode has its good spots, but it's not a five star. But I kinda no. like Darkling. Darkling is the one where the doctor is doing a Jekyll and Hyde thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, it, I thought this one was kind of middle of the pack. I didn't, th- yeah. I didn't think it was one of the worst. Or and I actually, okay. really, I actually really like Rise. That's the one where Neelix and Tuvok are stuck on a space elevator that's going up, and it's sort of a murder. Oh, yeah, story. that was good. I like that one, yeah. too. I so put that in the upper half. Not yeah. sure what they're talking about, but that's what they call it. Uh, let's talk about the guest stars in the episode. Carrie Shane plays Elyon in the episode. Shane appeared in many guest roles on television in the 90s. She also had recurring roles on the Fox series Party of Five and Beverly Hills 90210. Deborah May appears as Lyris. May appeared previously in the Star Trek franchise as Hanique in the DS9 episode Sanctuary. May was crowned Miss Indiana in 1970 and started her acting career soon after, leading to many guest and recurring roles on television. She appeared recently on the AMC series The Walking Dead as Natania, the leader of Oceanside. In 1981, she wrote and directed the documentary documentary, You Have Struck a Rock, which detailed the nonviolent resistance of South African women to apartheid. Patrick Fabian. Yeah, that's I thought that was really interesting. Uh, Patrick Fabian appears in the episode as Taman. Fabian has been a near ubiquitous presence on TV since his first roles in the early 90s. He can be seen currently on the AMC series Better Call Saul as Howard Hamlin, one of the managing partners of Hamlin, Hamlin and McGill. Kelly Kirkland appears in the episode as Rena. Kirkland's first regular role on TV was Yolanda Pratchett on the syndicated series Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad. I uh, missed that one, but it sounds great. That <laughs> yeah, sounds amazing. <laughs> uh, Kirkland is still a presence on TV today, having appeared this year on an episode of Superstore. Uh, Christiana S. Locken plays Malia in the episode. Locken began her career as a model before moving into television in the late 90s. Her breakthrough role came when she played the Terminatrix in Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines. After T3, she starred in the vampire film Blood Rain and played the titular character in the sci-fi network series Painkiller Jane. And fun fact, this episode's writer, Lisa Klink, would go on to write three episodes of Painkiller Jane. Hmm. Interesting connection. And last but not least, Christopher Carroll appears as Albin. Carroll appeared previously in Trek as Gull Benil on the DS9 episode Second Skin. Carroll has made over 100 TV appearances in his over 40-year career. He's also an accomplished voice actor and provided many voices for anime dubs of the 90s and 2000s under his voice acting name, Sam Strong. Hmm. Hmm. I always love how uh, sometimes... uh, Actors or you know writers uh, have pen names or uh, pseudonyms mm-hmm. that they use uh, because maybe maybe they don't want to be connected with a genre in particular. I'm sure a lot of people yeah. use those for sci-fi and that sort of yeah. thing. Or historically, they do it to hide their gender. For example, if they're women yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of my favorite. One of my favorite authors is uh, Ian Banks, and uh, he writes fiction as Ian Banks and sci-fi as Ian M. Banks. Not trying to. Not trying to hide his identity, just trying to signify to his readers, uh, this is a sci-fi one if you want to read this, and this is a fiction one if you if you want to do that. Let's talk about the episode itself. Uh, sure. There are a lot of things I thought were interesting in this episode. There, so certainly, are... there certainly are. One of the first things we should touch on is, <laughs> I guess in a general sense, how plausible are the scientific elements in the episode? Yeah, it depends on which pieces. So this idea of luring prey now i'm using prey in a general sense here because it's not necessarily that the 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 women on this planet wanted to eat the men (laughs) (laughs) close yeah well but it's the idea of luring prey by mating related cues which is essentially what's happening here except Mm. that they're 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 
you know, their end game was to somehow reproduce with them. Though it was a little bit unclear exactly how that was going to work. Yeah, um, that does happen here in the animal kingdom on Earth. So there are these fireflies in a genus called Photurus, and they they display this thing that's called aggressive mimicry. Well, they will flash just like another firefly species. So, you know, they'll flash like that. And then the fireflies from the other species will come to try to mate with them and they'll grab them and eat them. Oh, that's (laughs) dastardly. Right? (laughs) (laughs) So it's pretty dramatic. And there's things that work the other way too. So, for example, there there are these water mites that, uh, if I remember remember which way it goes, I, I think it's the females will sit there and try to just grab food out of the water. And what will happen there is males will come up near the females and they'll beat their legs at exactly the same frequency as the prey. So the females grab them. Then when the females grab them, they mate really quick with them. Okay. Hopefully they don't don't get eaten. (laughs) Yeah, right. That's a high risk uh, maneuver there. (laughs) Exactly. So that, that aspect wasn't crazy. Um, the genetics was a little bit more of a, oh, actually, I guess I should mention also there was this whole instinctive thing too, right? That, that Harry Kim was having this instinct that was coming where he would, he would suddenly start knowing things would suddenly start behaving. Yeah. Certain ways. Our old yeah. friend genetic memory rears its head in this right. episode yeah. again. I mean, yeah. it's, there are some instincts which are encoded in DNA. So that, that's not insane, but let, let's go into the genetics. So I guess let's start with first how he got this. Like, how did he get this? And there was a vague reference there that he was on some planet i don't remember the name of the planet they said he was on some planet he was off by himself and maybe you know he he touched something and then and and somehow picked this up so we could imagine that possibly of some sort of retrovirus or something like that that's Mm -hmm. a virus that actually has dna inside it or rna and it can basically insert that into a host so that you know again that's not crazy that maybe he could have picked up something and inserts in there and somehow maybe it actually even reproduces in him so it eventually spreads to many cells in his body sure sure I mean, a little bit of a stretch but it's not just like insane or anything like that yeah we don't know how exactly he was exposed to it i think it's plausible that it would be transmissible through normal interaction if it's you know, like a retrovirus yeah, um, yeah. but what i want to know is like most humanoid species on trek in Trek have a good chance of interbreeding and most of the <laughs> most of the species we see in the Delta Quadrant are pinkish humanoids. So what I want to know is does every pinkish humanoid male in the Delta Quadrant have this virus? Like is it just sort of everywhere <laughs> but it's only certain people like Harry who have the opportunity to go to space and and find their way to Teresia? Yeah. I mean it does seem like a really inefficient way of trying <laughs> to get Yeah, they just spread it everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, how far apart are these plants? And like, what are the odds that I mean that Harry has the choice to actually go to this particular place? Like, uh, yeah, that's, I feel that. bad for the Nasari now. I mean, their space has to be full of random ships just showing up looking for this planet. You know, no wonder they're so defensive and want to blow right. everybody up. Right. So Harry, it was interesting in the episodes. They mentioned that Harry's Teresian genes were quote unquote becoming active, right? Yes. And this was happening as he was getting closer to the planet. Again, that part in and of itself isn't necessarily crazy that like you know, so when you say becoming active what does that mean it means that the the dna in your genome is just starting to produce the rna which will help produce specific proteins and then often it's not doing that we do have genes in our body already that that basically only turn on in response to some specific environmental cue okay. so let's imagine there's some kind of radiation being emitted from the planet teresia mm-hmm. that, that somehow or another was actually like would stimulate turning on these particular genes Again, you know, the specifics there are crazy, but like the general principle, eh, it could happen. And that, mean, would, we, that would fit, too, with the um, the sort of mythological element that they try to kind of stick into the episode. Like if there yeah. was a literal siren signal that within yeah. a certain range of light years, then you were sort right? of activated. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that part's, that part's okay. Where it starts getting problematic is 
So they use the term dominant in there, and then they don't, or dominant and recessive. They don't really. I think sometimes the shows get a little bit mixed up about that. So you know, a, a, if you have two copies of gene, let's say one's dominant, one's recessive, mm-hmm. you, your trait looks like the dominant copy rather than like the recessive copy. Yeah. Now, the doctor made some comment about how the the alien DNA was re- was recessive, and that's why they didn't know it was there, but now yeah. it's more dominant. Yeah. So that makes sense in the sense of like you could see why maybe you wouldn't have seen the effect. But if you looked at the DNA, it would be there. He would see so those genes, ha- yeah. Yeah, you would see them. I mean, they're there. It's yeah. not like that they're not there. It's not like they're invisible. I mean, you would see them there. So that that didn't really work very well. <laughs> Some, yeah, and I was, I was, it reminded me of uh, something that science likes, or Star Trek specifically likes to talk about is like junk DNA, like yes. um, DNA that I guess we don't know the purpose, but guess what? It had, you know, salamander elements in it or... <laughs> <laughs> or these Theresian sort of things. And I wonder if that, that's what they were going for. Maybe, maybe. And, and the, the junk DNA, especially when you start looking at junk DNA in the context of like some ancient species from a long time ago, like even, you know, yes, we share a common ancestor with, with salamanders from a long time ago. Mm. And over time, they became salamanders and, and we became something else. But whatever that ancient DNA was that, that was present in our ancestor, by now it's been destroyed like a thousand times over in humans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? It's not, it's not just sitting there waiting like these salamander genes or something. And plus our ancestor wasn't actually a salamander. We just shared an ancestor right. with one. Right. It's kind of like, it's kinda like we, have, uh, we share ancestors with our cousins, but we aren't descendants of our cousins. Right. A lot of branches right? in that, that family tree. Yeah. yeah. Exactly, exactly. But one thing I was wondering about is like exactly how their reproduction works there. Yes. I mean, there was some comment about like the, I have a quote written down here that I wrote down. It says the child begins to incorporate some DNA from the surrogate parent. I'm still not quite sure. Like what do they take from the men and what do they do with whatever they take to to make the offspring? <laughs> yeah, they re- they've referenced denucleating cells, uh, presumably to I guess harvest material genetic material or or plasma maybe because the guy that we see who has this done to him is just a little yeah. mummy basically so yeah, see, i don't understand why you would denucleate because I mean, if you denucleated then it's like why aren't you just making a clone of the mom at what point at which point why do you even need the dad <laughs> that's true yeah yeah and, and we see that they're um they're 90 percent women in that society so i mean maybe in their history there's been cloning isn't there's um there's a tng episode that has that isn't there um up the long ladder i believe yes yep yeah they they had what they refer to as replicative fading in that episode which was actually really cool because that's not that's not the technical term for it but if anything it's actually that's clearer than the technical term yeah (laughs) (laughs) what's what is the technical term Muller's ratchet. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> so that's... ratchet only goes one way, so that's where that oh, comes from. Oh, okay. All right. I right? Guess so that basically, makes sense. you start having this long-term degradation as you accumulate more and more mutations. You can't get rid of them without uh, having, uh, you know, reproduction involving other individuals, where you can mix sure. the genetic material. Sure. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe the introduction of their virus uh, containing their genetic material lets the guy cook for a while or something, <laughs> and then gets it to a certain point where they can take it and then use a cloning machine or, or uh, inseminate themselves or, you know, who knows? Yeah. I'm not sure what's happening. I don't know. I'm not sure if they take out Harry Kim's nucleus and put in the Teresian one. I mean, you, I mean, that kind of thing does happen. I mean, we do that right now with, um, which was sometimes referred to as the sort of three parent baby where you have an egg cell donor, you have an egg nucleus donor and a sperm donor. Mm. Maybe they're trying to do something like that, but I don't understand why you'd need the guy part. I mean, that that is really not clear to me at all. Uh, there are real life viruses that can edit our genes, isn't isn't that true? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and are, I know they're used in gene therapy, but are there any real world viruses that could change an organism the way that Harry has changed in this episode? Like go so far as to change your species? 
No. <laughs> That's the short answer. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the longer answer to that, though, is interesting. This is, the, this is the issue that comes up all the time whenever they do genetic changes in individuals in Star Trek. It's this, this idea of, like, changing your entire body when you're already an adult kind of thing. I mean, it's yeah. one thing if you edit an embryo, like, it's like, a, you know, one or two cell stage. You can edit something there and get something completely different as it grows up. But... You know, I have a ton of cells. <laughs> like, how do you get like the genes to the same place and turn on the same way in every one of those cells of your body? That's that's really hard with an ed. Now, turning on specific genes, I mean that that's more feasible. So that's sort of more epigenetics rather than genetics. But but inserting something into every cell of my body. Uh, that's yeah. hard. I mean, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but it would be really hard. <laughs> and then the other thing then after that is the manifestation coming that fast afterwards. Let's say you did edit those cells. Then let's, you know, using examples, let's say you wanted to change me to a Klingon or something like that. Let's say you edit and put Klingon DNA. It's not like, boom, now I, you know, I suddenly exhibit all these traits. I mean, right. you know, my form is already here. You have to wait for all those cells to completely turn over <laughs> before right. you have that new form. Yeah, there's something really predatory about the Theresian society. I mean, obviously, but the way that they, they seem to have a mastery of genetic science to be able to yeah. program these viruses. So you think they totally. could just rely on on cloning, but... All right, that's a, that was the big thing right there. Exactly. I don't understand why they couldn't just get a cell sample from here. Like, why do they need to destroy yeah, Just give us some hair and you can go on your way. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's so weird. It kind of reminds me of, and maybe they are going for something like this, or maybe they share a common parent uh, from a genre perspective, but it reminds me of the 1985 movie Life Force. I don't know uh, if you've seen it or not, but so. in that movie, um, there's uh, Halley's Comet uh, returns to Earth in the 80s, and scientists go to examine it, and they find inside the comet uh, these these beings um, that turn out to be these kind of space vampires in a way. Oh. And there's there's men and women, and the they're both engineered to be um, like the vampire myth, you know, very um, seductive, very alluring and attractive to humans. And then when humans get too close, they sort of drain their energy and they end up looking kind of like Taman ends up looking in this episode. And so I, if we don't get to find out how they reproduce or anything like that, but they collect all this energy and then like send it back to their ship and, and take off. Interesting. Interesting. Cool. <laughs> well, uh, Harry is uh, affected by this virus. He begins uh, recovering memories about uh, Teresia and its enemies, uh, even fragments of language. And of course, yeah, this is uh, this is pseudoscience. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but the way that the episode tries to get away with it, as we mentioned, is by comparing it to the inbuilt instincts that animals possess, uh, like the rooting instinct of mammalian babies or the infant yep. swimming reflex in humans. Yep. And those, uh, how are those behaviors built into our genes? I mean, it's it's something where I mean, you can think of it in the context of uh, of say insects. I mean, I, when I'm talking to my son often, we talk about you know, you know, let's say what a cricket's doing. He says, "Oh, what does it think it's doing?" I was like, "I don't think it thinks it's doing anything." You should think of insects, for example, as just like computer programs. Yeah, you know, it's, it's just this little program that's been written and it's made a, and it's made a copy of the program. And every now and then, in the copy, there's you know, a bug is introduced, you know, because yeah. something wasn't copied exactly the same. So a lot of our instincts are the same sort of thing, where it's just this program that's that's written into our DNA that like if this than that <laughs> yeah right and that, that, that's essentially what then happens and if it's something that's advantageous and, and there's variation for having it or not for having it individuals who have it have more kids then natural selection applies and that spreads yeah 
It's like uh, it's like AI. It's uh, it wouldn't yeah. have to think like us necessarily. Um, exactly. You know, we're walking around with these four brains, so we have to think exactly. about why we do it. Yeah. What I want to know is if the virus can provide Harry with all these things, uh, especially a feeling of loathing towards his enemies. Why not? Oh my gosh. <laughs> why not build in an instinct that compels him to stay on Teresia uh, and want to get married? I mean, they're being plied with drugs and sex and probably good food, which is a motivator. But why not just give them like a docile instinct? Yeah, that's true. That's true. But I guess if you have a docile instinct, it's going to be hard because I guess what's happening is this this is something that's, it must be dose dependent by getting closer. And you want them to get closer. So if they're docile mm. right off the bat, they never leave home. <laughs> they stay on the couch. Yeah, they never leave home. I guess they could have a second signal. They could have a second signal that's much more local range. And once you get like really close, then you start receiving that signal. It makes you more docile. And it's like in that room where they first appear. And now they're like really tired. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's true. That would work in that sense. Yeah. Oh, that would be good if. Um, they started like acting like a cult when the, they showed up. So they're feeding, exactly, they're right. doing these things like feeding them really starchy foods and do, using all these sort of things Have that supposedly, turkey. yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> that make you sort of docile. Um, and you know, Harry was inspired supposedly they tell him by this virus to certain behaviors like the desire to explore space. There's organisms in our real world that can change brain chemistry and compel behaviors like the cordyceps fungus or uh, toxoplasmosis organism. Are, are there any viruses that we know of that can do something similar? That's a good question. I don't know of any. I wouldn't say it doesn't exist, but I don't know of any that do that. Yeah. Cordyceps, of course, is the, the fungus that uh, gets into ants, I think, yep, exactly. and then, then makes them crawl to the top of like grass stalks so they can be eaten yep. by cows to then the cow is part of the life cycle of the animal as well. And it's just, oh, nature, just go home, you're drunk. It's amazing yeah. how complicated that is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in your work, you've examined specifically um, the aspects that can keep populations separate, you know, keep them from interbreeding. And we don't know a lot about the Theresians' biology specifically, but it seems like they're relatively human and could interbreed with Harry the old-fashioned way. I mean, they look like that. Now, what we don't know is, you know, for example, would sperm from Harry fertilize an egg from one of the Teresians? That right. we don't know. And then right. all the steps after. I mean, clearly in terms of the physical attractiveness, it seems like that wouldn't be a problem, at least from the from the male side. Yeah. <laughs> but, but with respect to the fertilization, we don't know what would happen. We don't also know what would happen with the hybrids. Like if you just have something which has one complete complement of human chromosomes, one complete complement of uh, Teresian chromosomes, would it be viable? Would it even start developing? And even if it did, would it still be fertile? There's a lot of sort of open questions of what happens afterwards. I guess that's one advantage with the whole taking the nucleus out thing and putting in the, the nuclei from Teresians that you probably don't have to worry about a lot of that because basically the offspring are just Teresian. <laughs> yeah, you get around a lot of those things, I suppose. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, we all, I mean, Taman is very human seeming as well or humanoid. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I just don't know. Just have these guys show up and then, you know, just do the regular thing. I don't know what the problem is. <laughs> Again, the, so predatory. The, first step, the first step might be OK, but I'm not so sure about the subsequent steps. Yeah, the, the rest is not so great. Uh, the Treasians <laughs> tell Harry that his mother, you know, was um, affected. You know, he was uh, sort of tampered yeah. with in the womb. And we learned that that's yeah. not true. But can viruses affect the DNA? of unborn children? Very good. I mean, I don't know of any right off the bat that, that do that, but certainly like you could imagine a retrovirus that, that if somebody's infected with it might happen to, and I don't know if it will be targeted at a child specifically, but let's yeah. say, for example, the, 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 the caring mother had it and it got in there. It's not, it's not in principle impossible. It's interesting to, to think, though, um, that like 
Harry, <laughs> I love the non-scientific aspect of this uh, episode in which it sort of explores um, Harry's concept of himself as a person. Yeah. You know? And I, and I, I like the title fortunate, or I did it again, <laughs> favorite son, <laughs> because it really plays into the, he's been told that he's special by his mother, um, that he's been you know, he's been not forced, but encouraged to do all these amazing things. He sees himself as somebody with yeah. a lot of potential. And of course he is. Yeah. And in this case, he's being kind of tempted by the promise of being not, not being Harry Kim, being, getting to be That's something right. else and something different. That's right. I mean, everybody kind of dreams of being more than, than they are. Right. Everybody kind mm -hmm. of dreams of being somehow like extra special. <laughs> yeah. And to have this sort of extraterrestrial origin, it's, I think mm -hmm. it, uh, it kind of tempts him. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can see it. And I also like that, um, I like the dream sequences in this episode. Trek doesn't, <laughs> Those were hilarious. Trek doesn't, yeah, it doesn't do dreams all the time. Uh, and sometimes when it does do them, they're kind of weird, but I, I really liked yeah. it. I also like, I also like too, that um, in one of the dreams, his mother, you know, says, you know, we raised you to be a responsible boy. I'm suspending you from duty. <laughs> and I've always thought, awesome. I, I joked on an earlier episode of the show that, you know, given his age and, uh, you know, his proclivities, like Harry must have mistakenly said, yes, mom, instead of yes, ma'am to the captain. <laughs> That would be amazing. Oh, my God. Only That's once or right. twice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, speaking of uh, the crew of Voyager, I was thinking uh, I was been watching the uh, seventh season of Voyager recently. And of course, in that uh, season, uh, Paris and Bolana uh, have a baby. And I was thinking about there's an episode or two where they get into the development of the baby and they're kind of worried about forehead riches. Yes. The forehead riches. Yeah. There's that episode where she wants all the Klingon elements like purged from her baby. And mm -hmm. I mean, we're definitely in like the super science pseudoscience area, but I'd have to imagine it would be extremely difficult for a species with three lungs and all the things that <laughs> Klingons have to interbreed with humans. Yeah, I mean, it's it's also probably even worse for, say, Vulcans and humans in the sense that, you know, they have copper-based blood, blood yeah. we have yeah. iron-based blood. What do you, <laughs> yeah. what's the intermediate? <laughs> yeah, like they talk, you know, Spock always talks about it being half human and half Vulcan, but biologically, we, he just seems Vulcan. really Vulcan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot of dominant Vulcan genes, apparently. <laughs> yeah, they're very powerful genes. I think the doctor mentions that, too. Um, yeah. That that, it, that's, you're right. That did come up with, with, the, with the forehead region. It takes Actually, a few the doctor made a really good comment in that regard because he said something like, she said, but she's only one quarter Klingon. Why would she have the forehead ridges? And the doctor said, you know, that you can go multiple generations and still exhibit the dominant trait. And it's like, yeah, two thumbs up. That's right. Uh, really? Uh, what, what are some examples of that in uh, the real world? Uh, of a dominant trait? Um, Oh, what's it called? What's the thing when you have a sixth finger? Uh, polydactyly. Oh, wow. That's okay. Yeah, that's not a trait. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it, it, you could go, you know, given we have particulate inheritance rather than blending inheritance that we have, you know, let's say, like they always do the big A and little A when they do those little Punnett squares in school. Yeah, 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 right. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, if you have the big A there, I mean, if you inherit the big A, you're going to have the, the, you're going to have the big A trait. You know, it doesn't matter how many generations it's been. It could be 35 generations <laughs> of crosses to little A. If you inherit the big A, you'll have the big A trait. <laughs> Interesting. So I wonder then what the trait would be in the Star Trek universe, because of course, Paris doesn't have any ridge traits. Yeah. Um, how it eventually, you know, winnows its way out of the out of the uh, yeah. genetic expression later on. Now, randomly, it would in the sense that, like, let's say you have two kids, then there's a well. Initially, if you have big A, big A, and little A, little A, then all your kids would have the forehead ridges. But then after that, if, let's say you have a big A, little A, 
And so this would be like Bellana Torres, and she mates with a little a little a. It's 50-50 shot, right? It's 50-50 mm-hmm. shot. And every time that happens, assuming that they keep interbreeding with humans, it's a 50-50 shot. Now, if they get the big A, then you know it, it stays a 50-50 shot. But if, if let's say, the daughter had inherited the little a, she'd just have a smooth forehead. Mm, okay. Interesting. I'm imagining a scenario where two humans who have uh, long in their history uh, genetic ancestry, or Klingon genetic ancestry, um, mate with each other, and then suddenly their kid has ridges, and it's like, what? What's going on here? <laughs> so that shouldn't happen. If it's a dominant, if it's a dominant trait, it's a single gene thing that shouldn't happen. Huh. That like it shouldn't crop back up. The opposite would be true. You could have a bunch of Klingons that all of a sudden have a smooth They're forehead. Oh, recessive. Kid. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, that would be a problem, I think, in Klingon society. Yes. The smooth-headed kid shows up. They could implicate that uh, that virus from Enterprise, though, the augment virus. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Just to give them that thing. That's what it was. Yeah. Really <laughs> yeah. Uh, there is, of course, a, a mythological element to this episode, and it's kind of rammed home at the end by Harry uh, telling Neelix about Odysseus. Um, and I guess that the idea of seductive, dangerous women has precedent in Western myth, but it sure feels like this is another sex is dangerous parable in Star Trek. Yeah. They kind of do this a lot. Um, Kirk certainly had his uh, his share of paramours, but I feel like a lot of the – this actually feels like a TOS ep in a lot of ways. It does a little bit. That's a good point. I could see yeah. Chekhov in the Harry role here. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And a lot of uh, sci-fi, especially British sci-fi of the 50s, I was reading somewhere that a lot of British sci-fi is obsessed with um, dominant females and sex. And I've read that it's a reaction to the increased um, female sexual agency of the post-war era. Oh, interesting. Where suddenly, yeah, I get men are seeing women take jobs and, and being more sexually liberated, and that shows up as um, Amazon women from the moon, you know, in, in, in uh, 50s sci-fi. <laughs> but in any case, Garrett Wang gets to kiss a lot of girls in this episode, and that must have been nice. <laughs> he, he told a story, actually, that when uh, <laughs> yeah. when he had some of those scenes that – the significant others of a lot of those uh, a lot of those women showed up for the, oh, really? <laughs> for, the, for the filming. <laughs> uh, yeah, can somebody walk me to my car tonight? Uh, <laughs> um, this this episode, as we pointed out, not necessarily one hundred percent on the science, um, no. but you know that's why they have people like you. <laughs> Hopefully, I'll, I'll help out a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Would you I still ag- enjoyed it. It was a good. It was an interesting plot. And again, it wasn't the worst. It was okay. It was kind of middle of the pack. Yeah, and I always like when they bring these sort of genetic ideas in. Yes, um, that I liked a lot because and yeah, they tried. They tried to explain things. They didn't just say, "Oh, oh sure. you're becoming Torrigian." You know, they, they didn't just leave it like that. Yeah, it wasn't a ray or something like that. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. And I like the idea that even when we've got all this technology and we're out in space and we're doing all these things, you know, we're still affected by who we are, you know, and what we're made yeah. out of. Absolutely. Absolutely. I completely agree. Would you agree that even when the science is bad on Trek, Trek is still a positive force for science evangelism? Absolutely. And to some extent, even when it is bad, I find it useful in the sense that this is something that's instructive. You know, this is something I can talk with somebody about and say why, you know, this particular piece doesn't work. Yeah. You know, it's instructive all the time. So I like that, especially since they do try. If it was just, you know, like you said, like a ray or something like, okay, there's nothing to do with that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how many people are inspired by Trek to be scientists, though, and then show up, you know, first day of class and are like, wait, we can't turn people into salamanders? Like, <laughs> get really I disappointed. Anybody, I don't think anybody was questioning that particular one. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, a lot of scientists and engineers have been uh, inspired by Trek. I mean, tons of them. Astronauts, oh, sure. of course, too. 
Sure. And there are like specific tools now to like CRISPR, you know, to alter your genes. And there's a lot of people who are um, being a little reckless with self-modification as far as uh, CRISPR and, and gene tools go. Yeah, I don't know about a lot, but it is it is happening and, and outside of the guidelines, which is problematic. Yeah. yeah. I can just see somebody wanting to give themselves trill spots and thinking, hmm, <laughs> what would do that? What can I cook up to make that happen? See, it'd be a lot easier just to do the tattoo then. <laughs> yeah, just get the tattoo. It's a little more painful. <laughs> I don't know that it would be more painful. <laughs> oh, well, depending on what happens. Right. Uh, you, uh, you, of course, cover episodes like this in your book, Live Long and Evolve. Um, and I, I forgot to check back in your book, but did you talk about this episode in your book? I did. I did in uh, chapter three on genetics. I okay. Okay. One. And I know in your episode or in your book, you um, sort of give the episodes a rating as uh, being like gems or coal. Was this a gem or, or a piece of coal? This wasn't in that section. This was more. In oh, just okay. The general <laughs> if you had to give it a rating, uh, what would you give it? I would have called it mix. I would have called mix. it mix. <laughs> part yeah. gem, part coal. Exactly. There's some <laughs> aspects which are pretty good. So, you know, I mean, like the, the, Basically, the genes turning on a particular way in response to something environment. That's okay. There's no problem with that. Yeah. So that was positive. But then, yeah, the the, the dominant piece was not so good. And then specifically what was going on in the context of fertilization was – I wouldn't say it was problematic as much as just we don't really get it. <laughs> yeah. And I guess it's up to sci-fi franchises like Star Trek to to seek out and to boldly go into some interpretation of what we know or don't know. And sometimes yeah. they're going to get it wrong and there's nothing that we can really do about that. But at least they're and a, and trying. As, and as a writer, too, I get it that like they don't want to put in so much technology because, you know, I was curious about how that would happen. But I mean, I get that 99 percent of viewers probably don't care. They're like, whatever, the, you know, the, they could turn into Teresians <laughs> or they reproduce yeah. with them. So, oh, yeah, it's fair. And they don't want to overload shows with too much techno babble. And I've seen this in the context of uh, or I've heard this also from other science advisors too that if you put too much in there they're just gonna say no we can't do that that's that's we're not again we're not national geographic <laughs> right um and i mean, would that be entertaining too i guess yeah, to uh, some people i suppose there was i don't know if you've ever seen there was a canadian show called regenesis um oh. that is i think aired in the like the mid 2000s and it was nominally set in you know a real world our world but it mm -hmm. focused around a genetic um experimentation lab and it was about like real world issues so i think at one point they discover um somebody who claims to be a clone and so they are hired to like test this person but it leads to them finding out more about like problems in their genome and mm. specific episodes would be it's sort of like um like a dr house or an x files you know oh, from a genetic perspective yeah gotcha no the only canadian one i think of in that regard is something like orphan black oh yeah the, great example another great <laughs> yeah. example I, I'm not going to put you through the paces on the uh, scientific veracity of Orphan Black, but <laughs> I honestly, I mean, I, I watched the whole series. And I enjoyed it. I don't remember the details so well to go through okay. and critique it. Okay. <laughs> I remember that one guy had a tail, which I thought was more yeah. uh, just sort of interesting. <laughs> I don't think it really went to anything important on the show. Um, yeah. Well, it's uh, yeah, this is a, a fine episode. I mean, I don't have any problem with it. It's uh, it's entertaining, and it yep. does that great thing that Trek always does, which is take you know, a scientific element and then take mm -hmm. a storytelling, like in this mm -hmm. case, a mythological element and find mm -hmm. some cool synthesis of those two things. And that's exactly what it does. Agreed. Agreed completely. And it probably helped. We'll give it three stars out of five. How about that? Three out of five. <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah. It probably helped uh, Garrett Wang get that uh, people's most sexiest man. Uh, thing. So. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly Sorry. got Got him some attention. <laughs> yeah, think about him a little differently after this episode. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, let's it's talk. Funny, I watched it. I watched it with him once, and I remember him rolling his eyes at those. Oh, scenes. really? 
<laughs> I got to bring some good memories away from your time on the show, I guess. Uh, let's talk My Space Dad Can Beat Up Your Space Dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? I like Janeway, honestly. Yeah? I, mean, I, I got to yeah, change I mean, that to space parent, I suppose. Yeah, no, and, and she's nice in the, that she's she's authoritative, yeah. but at the same time, she has a heart. You know, she's willing to bend the rules when when the rules need to be bent. I feel like Picard's a little bit too inflexible sometimes, and Kirk's just you know he's gallivanting all off doing his own thing. I'd be fine. I'd be fine with Cisco or or or, um, or Archer too, but I think I'd put I think I'd put Shane Way at the top. Yeah, she really does, and of course, it goes to the premise of the show then being stranded somewhere that's yeah. not the Federation and having yeah. to be the Federation. Grace, but she really is Grace a, under fire. Grace yeah, under Grace fire. under fire. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, being magnanimous when she can be, when you know, being authoritative when she has to, she's kind of like the Ur Starfleet captain for me. Exactly. Well, now that we reached the end of the show, and also for your past appearance on the program, you'll receive a commission and the rank of full lieutenant. What department on the Ooh. ship do you work in? Oh, definitely science. <laughs> sure. Any specific field of science? It doesn't have to be genetics. Uh... Maybe I'll go crazy and try astrophysics and learn something new. Sure, yeah. <laughs> useful I, on the show, too. Yeah, it's very useful on the show. <laughs> Often, And it's useful on Voyager when the astrometrics lab can do things that I don't think – isn't it just a big telescope? Like, why can it, why can it <laughs> sense subspace things and why can it do all this stuff? But it's pretty cool. I guess in season three, they still don't even have the astrometrics no, lab. No, no, so. they, don't, they don't yet. Yeah, and I was surprised to see um, Cass in this episode, um, who, of course, was around, you know, until the end of the, uh, the third season. But uh, – yeah, I um I, I like Kess and uh, she's always she's okay. Yeah, she's helping out. Mm-hmm. Of course, when she leaves, uh, the doc only has Tom, so that's like, <laughs> that's, I bet he misses Kess <laughs> at that point. Person. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't. I never understood why the doctor didn't just like make more doctors. Yeah, like, can, exactly. Can he not have like six? <laughs> yeah. Why? Well, yeah. Why not just uh, either clone, e- either take the backup of his program, which wouldn't be as advanced as him, or find a way to copy himself, like get a huge flash drive, and yeah. then just make another doctor to do doctor stuff. Yeah, I don't understand even why they need anything extra. I mean, like his program is there; it could just be accessing the same program, and all of them could still be him. Or make like a second be... instance of, of him. Yeah, exactly. Or, or you know, six. I mean, I don't understand why there's a limit there. Maybe I don't. Know, maybe the the holographic projectors use all the memory available in the ship or something. Well, yeah, know. they do when they're. <laughs> they, they, what's so funny is because they do mention that early on. Like he, at one point, he becomes too big. Like he becomes too his his uh, memory banks get oh, full. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. But we're just talking about one like you know, mid fifties <laughs> bald guy here. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Herogens are creating like all of Nazi occupied France right? in a holodeck. And that's fine though. So yeah, it's weird. Not a problem. <laughs> well, Lieutenant North, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek in the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation and they can at, at EIST pod on Twitter and the enterprising individuals, Facebook page, where can people find you online? I'm on Twitter at, at, M-A-F Noor, M like in Mohammed, A-F like in Frank, Noor, and like November O-O-R. Also, if you go to YouTube and just look for Bio Trekkie Explains, with Trekkie has two Ks in it, one word Bio Trekkie, one word Explains, come up with my YouTube channel. Awesome. And of course, your book, Live Long and Evolve, is still available for people to buy. Absolutely. Paperback's out this year. Oh, really? That's great. Uh, do you know when? It is now. It's already oh, out. Oh, it's, it's it, out right it, now. It, okay, cool. Well, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And thanks again for joining me. Thanks you for having me, and thanks for the promotion, too. <laughs> no problem. We're signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed.
Your Honor, a courtroom is a crucible. In it, we burn away irrelevances until we are left with a pure product, the truth, for all time. Oh, man, now, this is so intense. Data is on trial for his life. I know. This episode, The Measure of a Man, is based on the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision of 1857. And every week on Backtracking, we take a look at the real-world events that inspired classic Star Trek episodes. Sorry. Who are you? <laughs> We're the hosts of Backtracking. I'm Caliban. You will both be taken to the brig and from there to the nearest star base, where you will answer charges for what you have done. And I'm Gooey Fame. This is not a game. This is life and death. You can follow us on Twitter. Backtracking is available wherever you listen to podcasts. You go f*** yourself. <laughs>